You're listening to Season 4 of Mobile Suit Breakdown, a weekly podcast covering the entirety of sci-fi mega-franchise Mobile Suit Gundam. For new fans, old fans, and not-yet fans. We analyze all 42 years of Gundam, episode by episode and movie by movie, researching its influences, examining its themes, and discussing how each piece of the Gundam canon fits within the changing context in Japan and the world, from 1979 to today. This is episode 4.3, The Cobalt Blue Planet, and we're your hosts. I'm Tom, a lifelong Gundam fan, and after last week's mega-sized episode, I'm glad that this week we can settle down for a comparatively brief two-hour episode. And I'm Nina, once again wondering if it would be worthwhile to get a premium Japan Times subscription so that we have digital access to their full archive, because our library access only goes back to 2006. Nina, why would we need to know things from before 2006? Hey, if you want to feel old, 2006 was 15 years ago. You know, I think I probably watched Shara's Counterattack for the first time in 2006. <laughs> Mobile Suit Breakdown is made possible by the support of 516 patrons and subscribers. We did it! We broke 500! Thank you all, and special thanks go out to our newest supporters. Doug R, Zach M, Christopher W, Matthew G, Javier AFS, Fufara, Thomas F, Recursive Fault, Disco Frog, Pacifist Crush, Candidate for Wrong Gundam Opinion, Char Did Nothing Wrong, and Casilda M. This podcast would not be possible without your support. This time of year always seems to go by super fast, but remember, dear listeners, if you want to receive this year's limited edition MSB pin, you need to be pledging $5 a month or more on December 1st. That is less than three weeks away. Photos of the pin are on our social media and our Patreon page. If you ever finish an episode of MSB and think, I'm having so many thoughts about Gundam. If only I had a community of other Gundam fans to discuss them with. Our patrons-only chat is the place for you. It is a fun, welcoming place for fans, new and old, and it's just one of many perks for our paid subscribers. Check them all out at GundamPodcast.com slash Patreon. This week, we are joined by a new guest, our environmentalism consultant, Colin. Colin is a lifelong environmental advocate and Gundam fan, and they are currently spending their time organizing around environmental justice issues in the state of Virginia. You can find them on Twitter at etpagetish, that's et p-a-d-g-e-t-t-i-s-h, or you can listen to them co-host for the Wow Cool Robot podcasts, coverage of Zeta Gundam, and on their own, much less serious podcast about Metabots, MetaWatch. During the segment that follows, we discuss eco-fascism several times. While the term and the ideology it describes have become more well-known in recent years, it may still be helpful to begin by defining it. In its strictest, most literal and technical sense, Ecofascism describes a political regime using authoritarian measures to protect nature. 
More broadly, and as it is used in common parlance, eco-fascism describes a line of thinking prevalent throughout the political spectrum which conflates pollution with modernism, urbanism, decadence, and corruption. It is preoccupied with the supposed menace of overpopulation, a fear that is almost exclusively directed toward global South nations and marginalized communities. It then seeks to use state violence to ensure that the environment is preserved for the benefit of whatever it defines as the right kind of people. It idealizes small-scale pre-industrial agricultural lifestyles as pure, correct, and harmonious with nature. This idolization of the agrarian past often incorporates conservative ideals about traditional lifestyles and hierarchies, in contrast to the, quote, liberated, decadent, overcrowded, and polluted cities. To put it another way, being a traditional farmer like your ancestors is supposedly more moral and more eco-friendly than working as a laborer in a city. Never mind that, on a person-by-person basis, rural and especially suburban living are, in many ways, much worse for the environment than city life. This is myth and ideology we're talking about. Rather than searching for ways to make our modern lives sustainable, eco-fascism would use state violence to exclude all those deemed unworthy of the land. This might take the form of eugenics, forced sterilizations of marginalized people in order to reduce population. It might take the form of hardened borders to keep out migrants, who may be viciously and horrifyingly categorized as vermin coming to consume all the resources of whatever country. It might involve the kidnapping of children from marginalized groups, manipulation of artificial famines, or overt pogroms. In reality, we saw these ideas in the Nazi slogan, Blood and Soil, which imagined a racially defined in-group exclusively entitled to occupy specific territory. More recently, similar notions have cropped up in discussions about responses to climate change. In fiction, we see this in characters like the Marvel movie's version of Thanos, who wants to kill off half the population of the universe in order to balance the ledger between natural resources and consumption. Hello, Colin. Thank you for joining us today. Yeah, thank you for having me on. I'm I'm, uh, chuffed, uh, as some people might say. (laughs) Colin joins us today to discuss the environment and environmentalism in Char's Counterattack. I think if you read Char's Counterattack either literally or as an allegory for contemporary social and political conflicts, then the environmental issue, the precarity of the environment, the potential threat posed to it by human activity, and what should be done about it, immediately leaps out as one of the movie's core themes. Although Char's own motivations are never clear, and the man himself gives wildly different and sometimes contradictory explanations for his actions, the state of Earth's environment is a recurring theme, and the effects of his plan, an artificial winter, subsequent global cooling, contaminating the planet with radiation, these are environmental effects. Throughout the movie, one of the big questions hanging over all of our characters is this. Can Shar save the world by destroying it? And it is that question to which we must now turn. 
So I'll ask you, Colin, can Char save the world <laughs> by destroying it? Um, uh, I mean, the this is such a complicated question. I mean, I've been a fan of Gundam for like two decades now. And the question that always comes up is like, is Char an eco-fascist or is he not an eco-fascist? And uh, I didn't really even have the language to kind of answer that for like until maybe five years ago, because this is like incredibly like complex stuff. And like a big part of my journey through environmentalism was realizing and accepting that the city that I live in is a part of the environment and kind of uh, getting rid of that notion that the environment is like untouched wilderness or that kind of thing. And so I think part of like the thing that makes this a, a hard discussion to have is, you know, even if Char does destroy Earth, to consider that the world or the breadth of human existence is not even true by the kind of fundamental way that Gundam has set up its setting and like kind of a huge cornerstone of giving Char any kind of like a, you know, a favorable read on wanting to drop a nuclear bomb filled asteroid onto Earth centers around Sweetwater. You know, it's really, really like easy to kind of write off the space colonies of being these artificial spaces created by man that are just floating in, in space. But again and again, some of the most like beautiful shots of nature that we see in Char's counterattack are in Londinian. Uh, and kind of like the the thing that really gets you to root for Char and make you think that, yeah, there are people behind him is seeing like how poorly the Federation has served uh, refugees with the Sweetwater colony and like acknowledging that environment includes cities and includes space colonies. And uh, maybe Shar can save humanity in general, and it really just comes to depend on what Gundam that you consider while watching this movie. Because if you make the jump straight from Mobile Suit Gundam or even just the movie trilogy to Shar's counterattack, the forefront of that that whole saga is yeah, uh, half of all of humanity is killed in like the first six months of war, and Earth is massively depopulated, and most people live in space. And that makes the idea of dropping a big rock on Earth a lot more, I don't know, palatable. Uh, but there's, you know, also continuing things, you know, uh, we barely see like any people on, on Earth and Zeta that aren't directly a part of a, some kind of paramilitary or military group. But then Double Zeta comes along and I think Double Zeta is really like, despite the fact that up until like maybe a couple of years ago, nobody watched it. Double Zeta is really where I have conflicts with Char's motivations in this movie, because that is that is the Gundam that shows us working class people, both on Earth and in space. It shows us, uh, you know, indigenous rights movements who want to remain in their homelands on Earth. And that's what really makes this question complicated and makes me want to, like, go through Char's counterattack with a, a fine tooth comb picking out every single like little background character to try and figure out, okay, well, is sure actually working uh, with the people that we now know exist within Xeon, uh, thanks to Double Zeta, or is he simply completely ignoring them? And, you know, like, I, I don't know, it's complicated. <laughs> <laughs> so I think you've laid out a pretty comprehensive roadmap for all the things that we need to take into account. Let's uh, break that apart and start drilling down on a couple of them. I did want to bring up two things. Colin gave us homework. There were two <laughs> pieces of reading that we did to prepare for this conversation, uh, one of which, called Principles of Environmental Justice, felt very straightforward and applicable. The other, The Progressive Plantation, I started reading thinking, okay, this is very interesting, but I don't entirely see how it relates to Char's counterattack. And by the end, it made total sense. I was so glad I had done this reading. It felt very illustrative. Uh, and we'll talk about 
all of that as we get into those details. I particularly liked that you brought up how the different environments are portrayed in the film, because for the most part, environments on Earth are drab. They're drab colors, they're dusty, they're brown. We often see decaying, violent urban environments, and what we see of nature tends to be barren wasteland, especially in the early parts of the movie when we see Lhasa, when we see quests running through all of these like abandoned uh, cityscapes, and when we see Mirai and Chaemin fleeing from Hong Kong, especially. But I do think this does change throughout the course of the movie. And towards the end, we have this montage of the Earth that has been saved, and it's much more positive. Yes. We get our first Earth animals. Up until that point in the movie, all of the animals portrayed are on sides. Uh, but we see some jungle, we see elephants and savanna and dense woods. There's that like little idyllic like alpine cabin. Yeah, mm -hmm. with a baby crying. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and then on the other hand, we have the interiors of ships and colonies, which are portrayed almost as cities of the future. Parks, shining cityscapes, lakes, mountains, birds, you know, even inside ships, flowering meadows, and even on Neo Zeon, you know, it's similar. It's densely treed, the city has tramways. Yeah, it's like... Uh... I don't think there's a very good read of this, but there's definitely one that you can dig into a little bit in this movie. Maybe if you extended it to like to the rest of Tomino's work, you could find like more nuggets of this. But like the first truly like beautiful natural scene that we see is it's like a projection in like the mess hall of the Rock Highloom where uh, Kess and, and Hathaway are just kind of hanging out. And it's truly like this beautiful sunset coastal like vista. Every time I see it, I, I am immediately struck by how beautiful it is and then have to be like remind myself that, oh, no, wait, that's fake. That's just the, their TV screens or whatever. Right. They can't possibly have a lake inside this ship. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think we are invited to contrast the artificial environments of the colonies with the uh, real environment of Earth. Because while what you're describing in the mess hall is the most extreme version of this, the manicured lawns of Londinian are no less artificial. But then we do get that um, uh, that final kind of, uh, you know, as we're, we're heading into the end when Axis is starting to descend, we do get that one little shot of Christine and the one hippie that's managed to escape with her. Mm -hmm. Similarly, like, you know, it has that similar sunset effect. It is maybe like the only nice looking beach we've seen in Gundam for a long time. Uh, but, you know. Well, we've been told that they always need somebody on Earth to clean the beaches. <laughs> <laughs> they do. I especially contrasted the sunsets because there's a shot where Mirai and Shaman are in the desert trying to get away from Hong Kong and the sunset looks like a pollution sunset. It's pink and yellow, but kind of sickly colors. Mm -hmm. We hear characters mention, oh, you can actually see the sun today, as though that is something uh, remarkable and unusual. Especially considering that, you know, an asteroid hit, like what, in the past 48 hours? And yeah. it's probably like completely clouded that whole region. Mm -hmm. But going back to the distinction between the, the real and the artificial, we can also tie that into what both Lala and Mirai say about Shar when they describe him as pure. They use the exact same word. 
which is translated differently. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but pure or a perfectionist. Too pure. Right. I definitely think one of the most interesting things about Char's character in this is this difference between um, the various public personas of Char and his interiority. Because, you know, you have the supreme leader Char and the politician Char and the rival of Amuro Char, which are all these very, very performative, like outward facing personas. I think that is also one of the major reasons that i i don't want to peg him as an eco-fascist is because like he anytime that we have interiority with him um you both get the sense that he very truly does not want to be doing this or at the very least does not want to uh come out of this situation in power uh he feels it's a necessary task that has incredible weight um but just really like honestly he does not want to be here uh <laughs> I mean, I don't even know that I am willing to commit to saying I think he believes it's necessary. I think Char's actual beliefs in the movie are completely opaque. He says so many different things to so many different people, so many of which contradict each other. Yeah, yeah. well, and, and he says, I'm not planning to change the world, which is ludicrous given what his plan is. <laughs> right. <laughs> and uh, he has an air of reluctance, but that's coupled with this very obvious savior complex and the fact that he didn't have to come out of hiding. Everyone thought he was dead. <laughs> yeah, it's like, uh, what what is it that Amara says to him at the very, very end? He calls him arrogant for constantly looking down on people. Uh, and it's, it is very true. Like it takes me back to that like kind of heightened theater scene in Zeta where Everything that Char is saying as Quattro is basically what Amuro is saying for a lot of this movie. Uh, that you know he would rather die and be ignominious than than take part in being this great man who has control over all of society. And yet that's what Char has become in this movie. Even if he doesn't truly make well, we like you said, we don't know what he believes. We don't know what his approach to this is. And very clearly, he has like taken this this course that's going to make him be this incredibly either hated or worshipped figure for being the savior of humanity for for getting them off off earth and supposedly preserving earth for future generations i guess a couple of the statements he makes refer to sort of the earth can't live with all these parasites and there is a sense of an attempt to preserve the earth but this is one extremely human centric <laughs> uh never once see him consider what nuclear winter would do to animal and plant life. Yeah, he has this idea of the earth that is really like of the earth and the environment as these platonic ideals, not actually connected to the living ecosystems or the living creatures that are participating in the environment, because his plan is essentially to kill all life on earth in order to save the idea of the earth and nature. It's this personification of mother earth uh which actually was a weird thing i noticed uh you know i have a, an old dvd that's usually the one that i watch when i want to rewatch a shaw's counterattack but just for ease going to this to take some notes i uh booted up the netflix version that they have up right now mm -hmm. and the translation is almost mostly the same uh but there's a a couple little differences uh which i guess are a little bit more literal but before the very iconic kind of ending conversation that, that Char and Amuro have, uh, where they did change uh, what Char said from referring to nature to explicitly referring to mother nature. And I feel like that's uh, 
really telling if that is the literal translation of what he's saying Mm -hmm. of like how important this idea of kind of separating the idea of the earth and nature into this like almost divine concept of it as opposed to a definition of nature that includes actual living breathing animals and creatures and people (laughs) yeah i mean they in that same statement right before he mentions mother earth it's because he's saying that mankind has to atone for what they've done to the planet. And I think his his purpose, if the number of statements along that line is any indication, <laughs> has a lot more to do with punishment <laughs> than it has to do with protection or preservation. And uh, yeah, there's no sense of interdependence or or really ecology to what he's talking about because there's no sense of ecosystems. There's no sense of species, including humans, living together in an environment. I think part of it is, and I'm always a big proponent that uh, Gundam should be as, as least subtle as it possibly can, that it usually fails when it tries to get you to read between the lines of, of actually communicating anything. Uh, but I think it's important to acknowledge that when we're talking about how Earth is being polluted, Gundam is primarily talking about the ways in which war and colonization and imperial power destroys the Earth. Uh, we're not talking about coal-fired plants or oil or gas pipelines or or anything like that. We're, we're talking about the ways in which the, the destructive power of government, in a very violent sense, is destroying the Earth. And I think that's what makes it the crux of it. Shar is ignoring people who aren't in charge of the Federation that live on Earth. But that's who I feel like he's referring to when he's talking about the pests and the vermin and the and the parasites, which are loaded terms, especially uh, regarding mm-hmm. environmentalism. Absolutely. But still, he is focused on the ways in which if the Federation remains in control of Earth, wars will continue to happen and irreparable damage will continue to happen to the planet. I do think that language about pests and vermin is a a strong piece of evidence indicating that he is, in fact, an eco-fascist. Yeah. Um, That it is about killing the people that he deems unworthy of the world. He puts it in this language of discipline and punishment and atonement and rebirth, but it really is, um, it's cauterization. It's a violent burning out of that which he deems uh, impure. And it definitely, it makes me so mad at how this kind of goes back to Zeta Gundam's kind of colorism. Literally, like, the only, I want to say the only, like, dark-skinned character with a speaking line is one of the guards at Lhasa at the beginning of this movie. There is no point where, you know, they bring, like, because this movie is obsessed with bringing in previous characters from, from previous shows. It's not like the blue team shows up and asks, how how dare you destroy the Africa that we're trying to liberate? Or even come in to like be a, a token character to say, oh, I can't believe that we're going to destroy the Earth, but it's worth it for all of our people that we, we you know had to bring to space as refugees. We don't get anything like that. It's simply Shar at the top of this uh, military machine enacting a plan that he thinks is the appropriate thing to do. Well, yeah, it's, it's funny to me that he has all of this language about protection when a lot of his stated goals are still exploitative like for the good of humanity i'm going to poison and destroy the earth (laughs) like it's just exploitation on a grander scale yeah uh and also 
that he takes this attitude that is described in the progressive plantation as a, a chauvinist one. He knows what's best for everyone, even though he has no idea what their lives are like or their experience actually living in a polluted earth as oppressed people. And it's so clear. I think from the way that the movie is constructed, especially visually, it's so clear that Char does not care about all of the poor, downtrodden people on Earth. This comes through in a bunch of ways. One of the most important ones is he is always focusing on the elites, the snobs obsessed with nothing but themselves and money. You know, these are his enemies, the ones that he hopes to discipline and punish. But outside of the first five minutes of the movie, they aren't on Earth. Those people have all left as soon as they realize that the Earth was threatened. Well, right. I mean, it's the question of who actually suffers when these things happen. Who gets through unscathed and survives fine because they have access and cachet and resources? And who are the people actually dying when this goes down? And by sort of the second half of the movie, we hear people starting to talk about the refugees on Sweetwater. Shar is doing this for the good of the refugees, to give them a state, to give them a nation, to give them hope. But that is also the point in the movie in which we see all of the refugees trying to escape Hong Kong. There are direct parallels here between the people that Shar purports to be fighting uh, on behalf of and those he is going to destroy. Yeah, and this is where I I start to question, you know, as much as what is Shar's character, and I start to question what is the character of the people that made this film. Hmm. Uh, there is a definite and purposeful use of of the train scene and how lovingly rendered so many diverse bodies are in that scene. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. it is to get you to agree with Char. It's to put you on this level where the when you're seeing various bodies of all different backgrounds, it's in this, this lovingly rendered scene where you have a bunch of people exclaiming their love and how like Char is going to lead them to a future where these refugees have a right to control their own agency. And when you don't see that is all of the kind of unpersonalized bodies in Hong Kong that are trying to escape or being blown up in a bombing early in the movie. The most personalization that we get of like a side character on Earth is this group of hippies that are hanging out with Quest. And very much, I feel like how out of time they feel is supposed to be kind of lampooned. It's supposed <laughs> to be a little bit satirical. Of course, you have these light-skinned people who are obsessed with this idea of like the, the new type phenomenon and refuse to leave Earth and are, you know, uh, very directly linked with, you know, this uh, social and political movement that's now, what, uh, 15, 20 years out of touch from, from when this movie is being made. Mm -hmm. While I do agree with you that the train scene is presented in a positive way and it does engender some, some good feeling towards Char, it is then immediately followed by Char getting off the train in what is literally Beverly Hills um, <laughs> and taking a limo to this massive mansion. Oh, yeah. If we are meant to see something positive in that train scene, I think we are also then meant to experience a sensation of whiplash in the immediate aftermath. Because I think Tomino and crew, especially around this time, are really interested in seeing and showing the moments when revolutionary energy gets co-opted. The Zabis did it. Haman did it. Like, Sirocco <laughs> attempted to do it. Amuro has a whole 
talk about this while he and Char are chasing each other around that Axis fragment about how dissatisfied the people who start revolutions become as things progress and get co-opted. Yeah, one of the lines that really stuck with me from Progressive Plantation and made me think of Char was that as capitalist society decays, radicals will look for radical and total solutions for the problems that arise. And repeatedly through this movie, Char will give some reason for what he's doing that I don't buy, that he can't possibly have thought through. Like, ah, yes, there will never be war ever again (laughs) if I do this to Earth. Earth is the source of all conflict. Like, you haven't thought about this. (laughs) You just... (laughs) That he's kind of childish in a lot of ways and likes the idea of a big, simple solution to all of these problems. Well, well, as we know, he is simply searching for a mother. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I I think to that point, though, you know, down to what is the very last conversation that happens in this movie. Oh, yeah. Like the final conversation of this is is Amaro and Char talking about Quest needing a father figure. Like that's truly what she was searching for. And I feel like that's so important to trying to understand Char's politics and what his beliefs are. We never actually get what Zeon Daikun's like true manifesto is. Uh, we get some notes about what he thinks a new type is and how that gets corrupted into and attached to this this very real phenomenon of space psychics that starts to happen. And we we get this idea that he has very clearly stated that space should be autonomous from Earth. But it definitely feels like the scene in Last Jedi where Luke Skywalker is pretending that he's read all of the Jedi books. I don't think Char has ever read anything his father wrote, <laughs> but looks up to him as this like political figure that he has to like become without really understanding anything about what that political ideology is. I would counter by saying, I think, at least based on what I know about Zeon Daikun's uh, political philosophy from outside sources, um, <laughs> but I would say it's not that Char doesn't necessarily understand his dad's ultimate goals but i think char because of who he is sees goals like the spiritual elevation of humanity everybody leaving the earthly cradle to go out into space and start a new era of human existence there he sees those goals but the only way he can see to pursue them is Violently, militarily. Violence makes him feel as though he's achieving something. Yeah. (laughs) You know, Gune is not a character who often says things that are correct, but (laughs) he does have a great line in there when he says, when people like the captain get angry, they start destroying colonies. This is down to, you know, when uh, Bright and Amuro are trying to figure out what Char's up to. Uh, Bright's immediate thought is like, oh, well, of course he's been trying to negotiate that Zeon should have sovereignty over Sweetwater because he wants to drop it on Earth. That's his next move. That's his next step, which really does speak to, you know, uh, the, the problem with Sweetwater of it being this ramshackle colony that was put together at the last minute as a band-aid for the Federation to put refugees in is a very, very real thing thing you will see across cities over the entire globe of the ways in which, you know, you have what we call frontline communities, uh, frequently poor, frequently uh, uh, communities of color, frequently indigenous communities uh, that just have crumbling infrastructure or band-aids like um, uh where I live currently, we're getting into a problem where one of the local uh, municipalities has been putting 
uh, cement culverts into the ground that don't go anywhere. (laughs) (laughs) They've they've figured out a a zoning thing that says that they need to put a certain number of culverts in the ground and they're getting uh, stormwater taxes to then put those culverts in the ground and they're putting them in the ground and they're not repairing or cleaning out other stormwater facilities. So they're just holding water in the ground, basically. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that's very much what Sweetwater is. And, you know, Char's not using his briefcases full of gold to try and build a new colony or repair Sweetwater. He's using it to buy a big rock to drop on Earth. And he doesn't truly believe in self-determination because otherwise he wouldn't take this attitude of it's my destiny to do this for all of humanity. You know, he doesn't believe he should be accountable to anyone. He doesn't think any of the laws or treaties apply to him. And this is, um, I, I have this theory that Double Zeta was really the rough draft for Char's counterattack in a lot of ways. And one of the things that makes me think that is Judo has this screed. He goes on at the end of Double Zeta, I think when he's talking to Glemmy, and he says, all of this energy, everything you put into this war could instead have been spent repairing colonies, repairing desperately needed infrastructure. And instead, you just built mobile suits and ships and blew up a bunch of stuff. (laughs) And one of the things that most frustrates me is that in some ways... Char's plan kind of enables the Federation, as long as they can beat him, to continue not addressing any of these problems. It's like, oh, well, you know, we would do something about that, but we have to deal with Char. And like, we're clearly the right side because we stopped the genocidal maniac. Well, and he's just he's taking all of the energy for change, for revolution or reform, and he's directing it into this one like decapitation strike yeah. this one I mean, massive messianic action i don't believe the federation can be reformed i need, think it needs to be <laughs> smashed and destroyed but Shar isn't interested in destroying bad systems i don't think he's even really interested in destroying the federation certainly what he is proposing to do wouldn't do that because <laughs> as we've already established all their politicians <laughs> and all their military forces are already in space he, yeah. he got all the politicians to space, though. He finally figured out how to do it. Congratulations, Quattro Bagina. <laughs> I mean, it's it's uh, the, the huge problem of, well, why aren't you dropping Axis on the moon? Uh, <laughs> and, and I know that there, there are massive problems with Tomita's uh, opinions at the time, especially concerning uh, his original writings on uh, the various ethnicities mm. of the people who were in charge of, of Anaheim Electronics. Mm-hmm. Uh, but clearly the the rich and powerful might vacation on Earth. It very much seems like the centralization of their wealth is in the moon and in the colonies. It's not on Earth. There aren't factories making DVD players on Earth. They're all out in space. That's where all their money is coming from. <laughs> and that was something we saw in Double Zeta as well, that the Earth is basically divided into these luxury vacation communities like Beach Mansion, like Dakar. And then on the other hand, these extremely marginal sort of uh, quotes attached traditional uh, communities living in the wastelands. And you get Africa where desertification has been allowed to run rampant. And then you get Europe, which has been like reforested as a result of a massive government investment. And then in Shara's counterattack, we see that same contrast between the totally crumbling, visibly falling apart infrastructure of Hong Kong as a city, and then the gleaming, glitzy, beautiful airports that all the wealthy people use to flee. 
one point that came up in sort of our casual conversations about the show, and I can't believe I didn't put this entirely together before, but uh, one of the defining characteristics of Quest is her privilege and the fact that she doesn't see it. And in a lot of ways, she's a reflection of Char. He doesn't seem to acknowledge ever just how privileged he is and that he doesn't actually know what common people need <laughs> or want even, except for, you know, freedom from Federation control. Like one of the two funniest lines in this entire movie is when Char goes through his history lesson on the plot of the last three shows and Quest just goes, I knew that already. <laughs> and it, well, and you, truly, truly one of the most realistically written teenagers in fiction. Yeah. The the sort of childishness of Char's plan gets hammered home a bit when Quest and Hathaway are talking about it and can't really justify the plan, can't really establish, based on their own discussion, a grounds under which Char has the right to kill all those people <laughs> or killing all those people will solve anything. You know, Quest is very into the idea until Hathaway <laughs> goes sort of, hmm, I don't, I don't know, though, why does he get to do that? <laughs> and she's like, oh, uh, I don't know. And Char's attitude toward Quest when he talks about her at the end we see glimpses of it throughout the movie, but it gets hammered home in that final scene in a big way that he is ultimately like just very exploitative. He uses people and he uses them up without any regard for them as people for what they want or f for their welfare. And I think his attitude toward the earth is the same. <laughs> a lot of the stuff he says about the earth on first reading, on first blush, it does sound like he cares about the earth and he's doing it for the earth. But often he's saying things like the people on the earth pollute the earth, and that's bad, <laughs> uh, because their souls are weighed down by its gravity. He implies that somehow the earth is bad for people, that they are doing bad things to the earth, but that really that's the earth's fault. <laughs> and so he needs to destroy the earth to make it possible for people to become better. And if it were really honestly about either of those things, and those missions were so very important, then why would it matter whether or not he's having a fair fight with Amaro? <laughs> like in the end, this is all just about like self-validation through victory and punishing Amaro and <laughs> Right. Like I did not watch Double Zeta until, God, uh, two or three years ago. Just because I'd, I'd always heard, oh, no, it's the bad one. Don't watch it. You're fine not watching it. And then finally, like, someone I follow online was like, oh, I'm going to finally give it a try. I was like, oh, yeah, like, I never watched that. Like, I, <laughs> I probably should. Uh, and it was just a roller coaster ride up until that, that final climactic moment where Judo says what we've all been thinking for this entire show, that the Federation doesn't know what they're doing, and he punches Bright in the face. <laughs> yep. And that, that's what's missing from this movie. We have Hathaway and, and Quest as are supposedly kind of like fresh to the, the setting, fresh to the movie eyes to view the movie through, and neither of them ever really does anything at the end of the movie to really point out how responsible Amaro and Char are for everything that's going on. If this originally would have been probably how they intended it to be, where this was the final arc of Zeta Gundam, and then you had this punctuated by Judo as this 
outside figure like there ready and waiting to comment on you know the inequity of the entire situation this would be a much better movie for it but we just don't have a character like that <laughs> mm-hmm. and quest and hathaway in addition to not doing much sort of in the grand sense mostly um don't come out looking too good <laughs> they basically both do really bad things Quest from the beginning just wants to be close to power <laughs> um <laughs> and <laughs> Hathaway seems sort of unconcerned by any of the broader social stuff that's happening, which is not unusual for his age, but we don't usually give kids that age killing machines. And so. <laughs> well, to be fair, nobody gave Hathaway a killing machine. He took it. Uh, um, but I think it does speak to, like you said, like how manipulative Char is. That when we look at where there's room for conflict in the story, uh, the room for conflict is never given to question uh, the plans going on. We have like these light little moments where Amaro gets to criticize Bright and the Federation or Nanai gets to criticize Shar, and that's basically it. We're never set up with any kind of uh, stress between Quest and Shar. Uh, to kind of like have her continue this this kind of line of questioning of like what gives you the right to drop an asteroid on Earth, she says I don't know, and then never questions that ever again. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, the um, perhaps most damning critique of Shar in the whole movie happens at the very end and is very subtle, and it's when a bunch of Neo Zeon mobile suits help Amuro slow down that Axis fragment and try to move it out of the way, which. Why on earth would they do that unless they had a problem with the plan all along? It does seem as though Char's personal magnetism like grabs all of these people and his his admitted talent for saying uh, to a person whatever it is that they want to hear in that moment. Um, and he, he sort of drags them all along in his wake. And it's only at the end when he's removed from the equation uh, that they sort of realize what they're doing. And then they do they do join the effort to stop it. And that is kind of what Shar is kind of like begging Amro to do. Because Amro is, you know, uh, as much as I don't agree with his apparent politics uh, in this movie, there is something about Amro that is deeply he wants to be collaborative. Uh, he, he wants to be communal in the way that they approach these problems. And that's ultimately, you know, what Shar wants him to do to like grant humanity, to, to grant the leaders of the Federation this wisdom that Amro has, apparently, about the need to hand over agency and hand over power. And it's, it's only in the, the kind of like final moments of the film where we have this inexplicably weird and sadly not psychedelic experience of a, a floating magical tea, uh, basically <laughs> linking Amuro with, with other people so that they kind of emotionally understand this and are, are kind of pulled away from the, the centrality great manness of Shar towards the idea of all of us can work together to stop this asteroid and save Earth. All of us can come together and, and save nature and save the environment, and save humanity. Um, but it's just, it, it sucks that still it's, it's mostly people in space. We have no real like space for somebody who is native from Earth, someone who is indigenous to Earth, uh, who has lifelong not been a position in power being elevated up to a point to have an opinion on anything that's going on. <laughs> mm. I think one of the nice artistic things that the use of the asteroid as the big threat does for the movie is it creates a sense of inertia, which is 
really felt when we talk about environmentalism today, and certainly in the late 80s as well. This question of, is it already too late? This question of, can we actually act? Can we wrangle enough people, enough energy, enough capital? Can we move the immovable object? Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> and the, um, the hopelessness, the sensation of hopelessness, has throughout the movie been represented by all of these other Federation fleets that are out there and are not helping and will not help, we are told. And the reasons for that are sort of short-sighted. We're told that they're afraid that if they leave their stations, there will be uprisings in the colonies. This, of course, is contrasted to Cameron Bloom, the uh, the heroic first Gundam character making his return <laughs> appearance here. Uh, and, and he does say, he, he gives over these nuclear weapons to Londo Bell, and he does say, if the Earth Federation survives, I will probably go to jail for the rest of my life. But he is willing to take that step to try to save the Earth. And ultimately, after the floating T effect, uh, these other fleets do go at great risk to themselves. They all come to the aid. And the question then is, well, is it too late? Did they act too late? And by a miracle at the end, we find out that they did not. It's funny, as you were explaining Cameron Bloom's actions again, I realized uh, basically that Shar and Neozeon did not learn anything from Haman's attack on Dublin, <laughs> which is that, like, they're not really hurting the Federation machine through any of what they do. The Federation always puts a spin on it that helps them. And, you know, here, the the risk is to the Earth itself, and the Federation makes the call that, eh, we sort of think holding power is more important to us than saving the Earth, and so we're going to do that, and oh well, I guess we lost the Earth, we'll make do. <laughs> yeah, as someone who travels in a lot of different leftist spaces, uh, this, this all feels incredibly familiar. This fear of people in power and hope of people without power that, uh, like, any given moment is, like, one tick of the clock away from revolution. Mm-hmm. And yet the people that truly are going to suffer in this situation are the people on Earth with with no power and no agency whatsoever, no matter what happens in the situation. It's very smart that the way that they frame Axis being blown up in the back half, not even being pulled in by its own thrusters, but simply by the weight of gravity is incredibly smart as like an allegory for, for climate change and, and climate collapse and what have you. Uh, but nobody in space is going to be a truly affected by the situation. It's only going to be, you know, the poor and un unpowerful on Earth that are going to be wiped out and destroyed by the situation. Truly, no one is trying to bring them as, in, into conversation on any of these facts. <laughs> I mean, I was just going to say that sounds a lot like a lot of the environmental movement in wealthy sort of global North countries. I think that's why the growth of the environmental justice movement over the past 30 years uh, has been so important. Uh, I know at the top of the show, we mentioned that I gave you all some homework uh, to read the principles of environmental justice, which are 17 kind of statements about truly like just and equitable guidance for environmental movements. And these arose out of, uh, you know, to give a, a short kind of history lesson on the environmental movement. In the late 19th century, early 20th century, uh, you had a lot of uh, movement through labor movements and early feminism and the rise of kind of like education on things like sanitary science and, and urban planning about things like urban decay and pollution. And then 
largely uh, the environmental movement goes silent over the course of the two great world wars and the fight against communism and all those great fantastic things that hampered a lot of political activism across the globe. And it's not until the 60s with the publishing of Silent Spring which is really just a hugely focused take on on the corporate use of insecticides and pesticides and the ways in which capital was used to encourage marketing to not have backlash come from the ways that these these pesticides were destroying rural communities. And it's only after that that you start to see people of color and uh, other marginalized communities, indigenous communities, get agency uh, and have avenues for for political activism uh, that ultimately culminate in uh, 1991 with the first, uh, in, in America, the first national summit for people of color in environmental leadership which codifies these 17 principles of environmental justice. They're all about things like making sure that we acknowledge that uh, frequently it's it's communities of color and marginalized communities that have borne the brunt of polluting manufacturing and dumps for refuse and that uh, you know things like imperialism and war are tightly uh, included in the ways that pollution is distributed largely across the global south. And this is such a huge problem in this movie that it's still like uh you know obviously like amuro is explicitly a japanese canadian but there are issues with colorism in this movie that are rampant across all of gundam as much as it is anti-imperialist and anti-colonial it still does not give any room for anyone to speak across uh you know how any individual community is actually being affected by this this conflict by the pollution that's at hand we're just looking at kind of the big gears turning and the big personas that are behind them. And that's part of what made Double Zeta stand out so much was its lowering of that lens to look at the people being crushed within the gears. And so many characters of color with significant roles to play in the plot, significant lines, articulation of their own situation in a way that we really hadn't seen in other Gundam up to that point. The the Africa arc in Double Zeta is a thing that is just so insular to that show. You could not, <laughs> I, I would not imagine it in any other Gundam. I would not imagine an arc that's about poor African communities that sit over top of an 80s style like strip mall that white people live in. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> In the movie's defense on this point, I do think Gundam is often about trying to be descriptive, trying to accurately portray the way these things are happening in the world. And if we think about the people in the world today making the decisions at the top levels, the people who are fighting the political battle at these high levels, the people in leadership positions, I think it's a very white color palette. Yeah, we can be quick to criticize media that is maybe not as hopeful as we want it to be. It would not be realistic in real life for uh, a 14-year-old boy uh, whose mother lives in a, in a different city while he takes care of his little sister and has to work at a junkyard to put her through school, um, getting an F-16 <laughs> and then proceeding to uh, have a massive effect on the outcome of an insurgent war across the globe. But it does suck when we don't have a perspective. You know, it, again, I think that Gundam is better when it's not subtle. 
if we had one character to really point out how messed up all of these things are, and I guess we kind of do with Nanai. Nanai does point out how ludicrous Shar and Amra's relationship is. Uh, and we do it when the broken clock of Gunye <laughs> is right for twice in this movie, you know, occasionally does point out how petty and self-centered a lot of this conflict is. You know, if we're going to construct a narrative, if we're going to make stories out of whole cloth, if they're going to include, you know, commentary on the real world, I would prefer that at least they also do or say something that points towards a solution. Otherwise, this movie is kind of incredibly nihilistic. Uh, I think a lot of Gundam is very <laughs> nihilistic. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, the world isn't going to be saved by, you know, a dead psychic girl connecting all of us. When previous Gundams have gone psychedelic, it's a framework that makes you understand that it is that is the characters putting an effort to communicate. And without that extra kind of fantasy lens, it does feel like the necessary communication and collaboration that it is going to take to avert the climate, like, apocalypse happens outside of anybody's control in this movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, it happens by random happenstance, which is really like the the only real lasting critique I have of this movie is that the thing that saves Earth is not necessarily something that anybody purposefully puts into motion. It's a thing that happens by accident. Right. Mm-hmm. Amuro slams the basketball into the asteroid and realizes that, oh, the psycho frames can resonate and that's what saves us. <laughs> I think it is very much um, miraculous and being a miracle, it is not uh, subjected to explanation. <laughs> right, but there, there is, um, I mean, the dark side of that kind of solution is that nobody had to organize for it, nobody had to work for it, it just happened. Well, and it doesn't exactly offer us any kind of a view of what we might do in our world. We certainly cannot hope for a psychoframe resonance miracle to <laughs> save us from the climate apocalypse. Well, it does tell us what the real work is that you have to organize. You have to reach out uh, to people that you normally wouldn't think of. Um, you have to you have to talk to people uh, that that are outside of your community and come to where they are, understand what their needs are, and um, help them understand the thing that you want to accomplish and find ways that those things intercede. Um, and sometimes that means you know, uh, uh, canvassing through communities, knocking on doors, asking people what's important to them, asking what's wrong with their communities. And sometimes it means uh, getting shot by a teenager and having your mind go into a psycho frame and flying around space. Yeah. You know, these are typical experiences that a lot of (laughs) activists have talked about. It's, I'm struck by the degree to which Shara and Amaro are two extremes. It feels as though the movie is critiquing both. At one point, Inside the new Gundam, Amuro says, I am powerless, or I have no power, or something like that. Whereas, obviously, Char thinks he is all-powerful and should make these humanity-changing decisions. Both of them are reluctant to be in the positions they're in. I don't necessarily agree, but Gundam seems to take the position that the public just really loves heroes and the public loves empowering these individuals for not very good reasons <laughs> to be the ones in charge and be the ones making the big decisions. Uh, there's a really, really interesting thing I noticed in taking notes for for this podcast that I didn't notice before. And that's in that um uh, in the 
Axis scene where Amuro and and Char are going around and shooting rockets at each other while Amuro kind of like finally spews his creed about what he thinks about Char. Um, in the the sub, he says the desire for change is slowly corrupted by bureaucracy and populism. In the dub, he says it's slowly corrupted by bureaucracy and mediocrity. Yeah, in the subs on the Blu-rays that we watched, it does say mediocrity. But the Netflix one says populism. After we finished recording with Colin, we went back to consult the Japanese dialogue for this scene in order to resolve the discrepancy between the various translations. Amuro says that after a revolution, the Kedakai Kakume no Kokoro, which we might translate as high-minded revolutionary spirit, is swallowed up by Kanryo Shugi, usually meaning bureaucracy, and Taishu, often the masses. Mediocrity and populism seem to be two different attempts to harmonize the concepts of Kanryo Shugi and Taishu into a single word, and the variance comes down to whether the translation leans more heavily toward the one or toward the other. Which, um, especially in light of, of the train scene, uh, in light of a lot of things about, about Gundam and the way that it, fascism arrives out of, of populist nationalism, it is interesting to kind of like contemplate how much the movie is trying to say that, you know, the average person has enough knowledge of the situation to truly empower the right person. I don't know exactly where I want to say I fall on whether <laughs> or not the that's like incredibly cynical or if perhaps Gundam is trying to say something a little bit more on the lines that uh, it is impossible to know the people that you put in power and therefore maybe we should not put so much power in their hands. <laughs> we also have to remember the time period that Tomino and his contemporaries grew up in. Very small children during the war. The reconstruction of the post-war period, the almost immediate reemergence of uh, sort of nationalistic historical revisionism, the student movement of the 60s and into the 70s, and how that basically evaporated uh, with the economic prosperity of the <laughs> early 80s. Mm -hmm. And so I think the people writing Gundam around this time or the people uh determining the grand narrative, we're very disillusioned with society at this point and, and very disappointed with what they had seen happening over those three or four decades. I do think the Japanese political context is incredibly important here because the Federation with its sort of like quasi-democratic structure, its opaque bureaucracy, sort of Byzantine procedures, its functionaries who are actually running the show sort of by fiat, does all, I think, quite closely resemble the Japanese political system, which has been overwhelmingly dominated for basically the entire time since the end of the war by the sort of center to far right LDP. And a lot of Shah's language, it, it's not always translated this way in the English, but he's talking in terms of like political purges. Yeah, it's... It's very obvious that, you know, depictions of Xeon up until this point are so, so heavily based off of far-right nationalism and specifically German fascism. And then to see this kind of a hard yet subtle change to now it really feels like Shar in this movie is supposed to conjure images of Stalin and authoritarian communism, and especially like the focus on purges, 
but the change in that is so specific and also feels so specifically tied to i i know we have tomino has never said that he was a participant in the uh student protest movement as far as i i know but for him to clearly have witnessed that and witnessed how it pretty much completely failed and mm-hmm. especially the ways in which so many student protest like organizations in Japan were undone by going into armed violent extremism to then be completely crushed by the government mm-hmm. uh really does speak to how much I guess we should expect Shar to fail in this movie, to expect Zeon to fail. And even if we don't agree with the Federation, that ultimately there is a, a degree of momentum that it will simply always steamroll and continue on. Mm-hmm. And some amount of reform coming out of that is maybe the best we can hope for. And that does go back to that, that sense of nihilism you pointed out. When Tomino has talked about his student life and his time during the student activism days, uh, he said he wasn't involved directly. Uh, He preferred to sort of observe the structures of power from the outside. But one of his senpai at school was a member of the Japanese Red Army. And so Tomino is definitely like connected to these people, to these ideas and to these movements somewhat indirectly. I do want to um, mention, since you brought up the sort of parallels to German fascism, um, we've talked before about a lot of close parallels to Japanese fascism or ultranationalism, and then you mentioned the, the Stalinism side. This movie does contain a scene near the beginning where some neo zeon suicide bombers destroy a, uh, a Federation gun emplacement, and they are screaming, you know, neo zeon Banzai. Yeah. The, the connection to Japanese ultranationalism there is strong. That's maybe one of the more confusing things for me in this movie, just because Japanese ultranationalism is so, so far right and so anti-communist that it's weird to see it employed in the name of a faction that, as it exists in, in its kind of like ideological language in this movie, is so clearly trying to seem like a... Uh, you know, a, a communist new world order trying to create a new government in the name of refugees and outside of the kind of um, centralized federation government. But that lip service to the refugees, to the needs of the population, is very common in fascism. Yeah, and in fact, that's true. <laughs> very common in Japanese ultranationalism, especially if you look at the sort of like proto-fascist 1920s uh, movements. We did a couple of episodes about the uh, February 26th incident, which was an uprising by Japanese soldiers uh, sort of against and for the emperor. It's complex. We spent a lot of time on it. (laughs) Yeah. But one of the things that always comes up when we look at these guys is that if they weren't fascists, they would sound like communists (laughs) in their rhetoric. So this is this is not new. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Especially, you know, Japanese fascism, I guess before, you know, the turn of the century was so focused on Pan-Asianism and being anti-Western imperial that, yeah, it sh- it should be no surprise that it is, you know, uh, simply taking a group and trying to empower them by putting them against a group that seems more powerful. Oh man, I'm sorry that I've kind of like pushed us to like a very very political bent. Uh, I feel I feel like we've gotten <laughs> off the environmentalism. <laughs> no, it's almost like everything is political. Yeah, <laughs> I don't think there was any way to talk about the environment and environmentalism without touching on uh, political issues. Yeah, that is true. 
I think it's really telling just how much, uh, you know, early in the movie, Char's lines are entirely about kind of the status of the earth and the health of the earth. And then those are completely substituted by the end of it with him talking about the state of humanity and the evolution of humanity in space. It's almost kind of he is supplanted one idea with the other and they're interchangeable for him for whatever his like goal or ideology is. Or he's simply at his most honest when he's talking to Amaro. And I think there's some truth to that. Uh, I'm going to bring this to a close by going all the way back to the beginning and something you said, Colin, when you pointed out the moments of Char's interiority. (laughs) The first moment of interiority for him takes place before the movie even begins, and it's when he gives Amaro the psycho frame. (laughs) He does this even though it contradicts all of his stated goals, and he's got no particular reason to do it, and he doesn't get anything out of it, so it would seem. So I think that's him doing something earnestly, truly in line with whatever his secret, inner, actual agenda is. And the second time is right after the meeting at Londinian, when he puts on the sunglasses, <laughs> he says the line, he says, Amaro, I'm doing something extremely wicked. And then he says, if you're nearby, feel my presence. And this immediately follows where he's commented offhand to somebody else that if Londobel found out that he was there, they wouldn't take it too kindly. I think the implication is when he says, Amaro, feel my presence, he wants Amaro to stop him. I think more than anything, Char wants to be stopped. He makes a few statements in the movie, this is a separate discussion, that kind of indicate he has a death wish. I, I think there is no other way that you can take the end of his his iconic speech. Right. Ending with, and then I can finally join my father. Exactly. He expects to die in the situation. <laughs> and so I suppose we end with a question very much like the question we began with. Can Shar save the earth by destroying himself? And now, Nina's research on Chernobyl, nuclear anxiety, and Japan. The word nuclear is omnipresent in this film. From nuclear bombs and missiles to nuclear pulse engines, nuclear technology is a major part not just of warfare, but life in space in the universal century. Beyond the clear, destructive threat of nuclear weaponry is a new to Gundam threat, nuclear winter. And on top of that, radiation poisoning from the Federation's nuclear arsenal. We complained at length about Char's unclear aims, but it does seem that nuclear fallout and its effects on the environment are a significant part of his plan for making Earth uninhabitable. Double Zeta ended February 22, 1986. Just two months later, on Saturday the 26th of April, there was a catastrophic accident at the Chernobyl nuclear power plant near the city of Pripyat in what was then the Ukrainian SSR in the Soviet Union. An unexpected drop in power during a planned safety test led to unstable conditions in the number 4 reactor, which combined with design flaws to cause a nuclear chain reaction. Explosions, fires, and the release of massive amounts of radioactive material into the atmosphere. The area immediately around the plant was showered in radioactive material equivalent to that of 20 times the atomic bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. The fallout, both literal and figurative, would take decades to unravel. 
Shar's counterattack premiered in theaters less than two years after that fateful day and was already in production when the accident occurred. Consciously or subconsciously, an event that loomed so large must have affected both how the creators crafted the film and how audiences viewed it. That is the focus of this research. How did Chernobyl affect Japan? How did it shape public opinion about all things nuclear? How was it discussed in the news or addressed in other media? And how might this have affected the CCA experience for contemporary audiences? I will not be getting too deep into the weeds of the science behind the Chernobyl disaster, and I will not be doing comparative cost-benefit or risk analyses of different energy sources. That is all outside the scope of this research. Before I dive in, there were a couple of things that made this research tricky. First of all, it turns out that a lot of online archives for newspapers and magazines don't extend back to the 80s. Grumble, grumble. Secondly, Chernobyl was often invoked when people wrote about the 2011 Fukushima Daiichi disaster, meaning that searches for Japan and Chernobyl turn up more recent articles. But even with these limitations, my search turned up a lot of fascinating details, and I am excited to share them with you. In the immediate aftermath, there was very little information and a lot of secrecy, which naturally fueled distrust. It became yet another proxy argument in the Cold War, with the United States accusing the USSR of hiding the full scope of the accident and downplaying what it did know, despite the fallout's international effects. In turn, the USSR accused the United States of blowing the whole thing out of proportion in an attempt to discredit them. In fact, many theorists believe that the Chernobyl disaster was a major contributing factor in the collapse of the Soviet Union. It exacerbated tensions between the central government and both Ukraine, where the plant was located, and Belarus, where 70% of the contamination landed. Even beyond those Union republics, it contributed to decreased confidence and trust in the central government and mitigation for the accident. Cleanup, relocation, medical, and so on was ruinously expensive. Just a few months later, in response to the accident and the slow flow of information, the International Atomic Energy Agency created its Convention on Early Notification of a Nuclear Accident Treaty, quote, whereby states have agreed to provide notification of any nuclear accident that occurred within its jurisdiction that could affect other states. In an article that gave me flashbacks to the early days of the COVID-19 pandemic, one journalist noted how a torrent of conflicting, confusing health advisories flowed from government, environmentalists, and news media, contributing to widespread distrust of scientists, doctors, and governments. Adding to the confusion, anxiety, and worry, there are different competing models on the risks and effects of radiation exposure. Who needed to be concerned? Who faced increased cancer risk? There were few, if any, definitive answers. Many individuals and organizations used the accident to promote their already entrenched positions. And at the same time that data about Chernobyl was scarce, new studies of the aftereffects of the bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki seemed to indicate that cancer risk from exposure was much higher than previously thought. Public opinion came out strongly against nuclear energy. Around the world, and especially in Europe, already planned projects were canceled, Projects already underway were discontinued, and even already operational plants were decommissioned. Higher costs, brought on by hostile public opinion and new, more stringent safety standards, 
contributed to this decline. There was additional public concern that cost-cutting would lead to decreased safety of both construction and operation and maintenance of plants. Many of the sources I read conveyed extreme anxiety post-Chernobyl, even from people with minor or negligible radiation exposure. In Japan, the public was hungry for information about the effects of Chernobyl radiation fallout in Japan, concerned in particular about contamination of food, local and imported, fisheries, and water. And a lot of the reporting on these issues was unhelpful. One article noted alarmingly that, quote, radioactive debris from the accident, which began more than a week ago, was detected at 10,000 feet above sea level near Tokyo, and only later mentions that the detected levels are, quote, too low to be hazardous. May of 1986, about one month after the accident, a, quote, surprisingly high level of radioactivity was detected in rainfall in Japan. Despite government assurances that this posed no risk to humans, livestock, pets, crops, or fish, people were nervous. In many parts of Europe, there was an increase in elective abortions, despite no evidence at the time that any pregnant person was exposed to the threshold dose for expected fetal anomalies. Studies years later would find some unanticipated effects, but at the time there simply wasn't much information to go on. Unsurprisingly, anti-nuclear organizations in Japan predate Chernobyl. One group who, to my delight, released an English-language newsletter in the late 80s and had it all available as PDFs on their website, is the Citizens Nuclear Information Center, or Genshi Ryoku Shiryo Joho Shitsu. Established in 1975, they began as an anti-pollution group, specifically focused on Japanese exports of hazardous waste to poorer countries in the region. They had a strong sense of the importance of international cooperation, since the risks and effects of pollution supersede national borders. They brought the same awareness to anti-nuclear organizing, not just coordinating local opposition to nuclear plants, but also protesting Japanese energy company exports of nuclear technology, equipment, expertise, and so on. Mind you, if you read their flyers, they seem entirely unconcerned about the environmental and health effects of fossil fuels, but I'm not going to let that sidetrack me. <laughs> Before Chernobyl, anti-nuclear sentiment was strongest near plants themselves, especially from farmers and fishermen who were worried about how contaminants would affect their livelihoods. And women's groups, particularly mothers, focused on the effects on children. There was an active protest movement, and one of the group's newsletters claims that from 1977 to 1987, no new site plans were approved for nuclear power plants in Japan. But this led to a concentration of new reactors at already approved sites, which is why something like one-third of Japan's nuclear reactors were concentrated in just two prefectures, Fukui and Fukushima. After Chernobyl, the anti-nuclear movement garnered interest from a much broader slice of Japanese society. Organizations distributed charts about cancer risk and lists of common imports from Europe alongside detected radiation numbers. They planned protests and marches and built connections among disparate groups of interested and affected people. The feeling was that the Chernobyl accident had helped greatly change public opinion in Japan and Citizens Nuclear Information Center seemed confident that they could prevent any new nuclear plant construction in the country. 
At the same time, the companies involved in nuclear plant technology and construction went on a charm offensive. They conducted their own studies on the causes and effects of the accident, focusing on the geographic limits of contamination and general nuclear plant safety. They increased spending on advertising, sent representatives out on speaking engagements, distributed literature, brochures, stickers, and even sent schools lesson plans related to nuclear energy, complete with model kits for the kids to build. To calm their clients, the messaging was usually some version of Chernobyl can't happen here because your plant uses or will use some different reactor design, or your safety culture is completely different, or insert some reason why your case is exceptional here. In the end, Citizens Nuclear Information Center was overly optimistic. Anti-nuclear groups had little power or influence, and experts doubted whether Chernobyl would meaningfully slow Japan's nuclear energy industry in the long term. As of the release of CCA, the experts were right. Not only because of the influence of business interests, though. Another factor was that the government and many energy experts saw nuclear energy as Japan's lone chance at energy self-sufficiency. As of 1988, Japan imported 83% of its energy and all of its oil. Oil-fired plants provided over a third of Japan's energy needs, and this dependence on energy imports raised economic and security concerns. With the electricity needs of the country, from individuals to industries, at the mercy of foreign trade relationships and oil and gas prices. For this reason, in July of 1986, Japan's Government Ministry of International Trade and Industry Energy Advisory Committee recommended the country build more nuclear plants, despite the safety concerns raised by Chernobyl and the, at the time, lower prices on imported fossil fuels. Their goal was for nuclear power to provide 58% of Japan's total electricity production by 2030. For perspective, in 1987, Japan had 36 plants supplying 25% of Japan's energy needs. In 1980, Japan had announced plans to dump radioactive waste in the Pacific Ocean against opposition from other Pacific nations. Although postponed, the plan continued. Despite a 1985 international moratorium on nuclear waste dumping at sea and the 1986 Chernobyl accident, the government's strategy was to quiet opposition in the region by linking economic aid to support for their plan. One year after Chernobyl, the Japanese government's position was that the public didn't need to worry since Japan's nuclear plants all used a different reactor design than the one that had failed. In a report released to the public, the conclusion was that serious accidents like Chernobyl could never happen in Japan. Less than a year after the accident, the Japanese government had resumed ordering nuclear plants. Popular media about, influenced by, or referencing the accident proliferated. Books, music, TV, and film projects, both fiction and documentary, and even video games. In Japan, the punk band The Blue Hearts Zaburu Hatsu, who you might know from their hit song Linda Linda, wrote an anti-nuclear power song called Chernobyl, released on their 1988 single Blue Hearts Theme. Supposedly, they had to change labels in order to release the song, since their label at the time had ties to the nuclear power industry. The influence of Chernobyl persisted into the 90s. In 1995, Studio Ghibli head Miyazaki Hayao created an animated music video for the Chage and Asuka song On Your Mark, 
that features humans living underground due to the surface of the earth being contaminated, and depicts a building much like the Chernobyl sarcophagus, the protective structure built around the failed reactor, uh, in an area much like the exclusion zone around the plant, the 30 kilometers or 19 miles in every direction from the plant that was evacuated and remains mostly uninhabited. In looking for information about how public perception of nuclear technology has formed and shifted over time, I came across the concept of radiophobia. Now, a phobia is a persistent, extreme, and irrational or excessive fear of something. And when it was first coined, radiophobia referred to a fear of radio broadcasting. But by the 1950s and 60s, it came to refer to a fear of radiation, most commonly in a medical context, for example, fear of x-rays and then to other kinds of radiation exposure. But what exactly makes a fear irrational or excessive? Japan's history complicates its relationship to nuclear technology, and public anxiety about nuclear energy and radiation are indelibly marked by that history. The atomic bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki make Japan the only country to have nuclear weapons used against it in wartime. There are still people alive today who lived through those bombings. And although it didn't happen until the early 90s, this status prompted Japan to reach out and provide medical and other aid to Belarus, an act of solidarity as fellow victims of nuclear disaster. Less than a decade after the end of World War II, Japan found itself dealing with American nukes once again, this time in the Castle Bravo tests of 1954. Tests of a new thermonuclear device, shrimp, exceeded the predicted yield of 4 to 6 megatons for an actual yield of 15 megatons. The tests produced visible particles of nuclear fallout well outside the cordoned-off test area, and the Japanese fishing boat Daigo Fukuryu-Maru was caught in the plume. Two weeks later, the crew developed acute radiation sickness. Approximately 100 boats and crews were exposed, as were parts of the Marshall Islands and fisheries were contaminated. The secrecy around the tests, plus the misjudgment of yield, contributed to a perception that scientists were being reckless with technology they didn't fully understand, and that governments couldn't be trusted. Many of the fishers who'd been exposed and their families faced discrimination in their home communities from people afraid the radiation exposure was contagious, all of which further contributed to anti-nuclear sentiment. Even before Chernobyl, art and media were grappling with these nuclear anxieties. In the 1954 film Gojira, or Godzilla, directed by Honda Ishiro, the eponymous monster with its radioactive fire breath laying waste to Tokyo is atomic bomb and firebomb in one. And the oxygen destroyer, the weapon that might be the only hope for humanity's survival, could be more dangerous than Godzilla itself. The book Ishiro Honda, a life in film from Godzilla to Kurosawa, describes Godzilla as, quote, a plea for sanity amid the madness of the nuclear arms race, a film that poses questions about the human and global costs of reckless scientific inquiry. Honda wanted to express his views about scientists and the responsibility they have for how their inventions are used. The scientist who invents the oxygen destroyer seems caught in an impossible dilemma, let Godzilla destroy Japan, or use this terrible new weapon and risk that the technology will be used for warfare. In the end, he agrees to help defeat Godzilla, 
They lure the creature to the depths of the ocean and use the oxygen destroyer underwater. The scientist, also underwater to see the weapon properly deployed, cuts his safety tether and commits suicide, the secrets of the oxygen destroyer dying with him. 1955 saw Kurosawa Akira release possibly his most controversial film, and the only film of his career that didn't make a profit, Ikimono no Kiroku, meaning, roughly, Record of a Living Thing, released in the United States under the title I Live in Fear. In it, foundry owner Nakajima Kiichi becomes terrified of looming nuclear war and wants to abandon the family business and Japan and take his wife and children and mistresses and his children with them to Brazil. His oldest children, all adults, convince his wife, their mother, to have him deemed mentally incompetent. One member of the panel, a local dentist, wonders if this is fair, since, quote, fear of nuclear weapons is present in every citizen of Japan. But ultimately, the panel agrees with Kiichi's children. Growing desperate, he burns the family business to the ground, thinking that his loved ones will be willing to move on if they don't have this tie to home. Guess who that reminded me of? Even this extreme action doesn't convince them, and one of his sons points out that with nuclear proliferation, there isn't anywhere on Earth that is truly safe from nuclear war. At the end of the film, the dentist from the panel visits Kiichi in the psychiatric institution his family has put him in. He speaks to Kiichi's psychologist, who wonders if it's more insane to ignore the nuclear threat than it is to take it too seriously. Kiichi himself believes that he has escaped to another planet and becomes agitated when he sees the sun through his window and thinks it is the Earth burning. This is a movie all about the ways individual people and society as a whole live with an omnipresent existential threat, with ignoring it and becoming obsessed with it at two ends of the spectrum. It is also about the ways in which the trauma of lived experience informs what seems reasonable and unreasonable, dangerous and not. If I understood the Japanese Wikipedia page correctly, some considered the film to have masterfully captured the feeling of living through frightening times, death, destruction, from the Great Kanto Earthquake through World War II and the atomic bombings and into the Cold War. Discussing why he thought the movie did not make a profit, Kurosawa said, and I'm translating myself, so grains of salt, but the Japanese people are incapable of looking at reality head on. Finally, I want to mention a non-Japanese film that still feels as though it could have been influential on Char's counterattack, or at least that it could reflect similar thoughts, feelings, and concerns about nuclear technology. 1964's Dr. Strangelove, or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb, directed by Stanley Kubrick. In this classic satire, a rogue U.S. Air Force general orders a first-strike nuclear attack on the Soviet Union. And most of the film involves high-level politicians and military leaders attempting to stop the attack and avert nuclear war. In the course of the film, it's revealed that the Soviet Union was about to announce a new deterrent, a series of bombs set to auto-detonate in the event of a nuclear attack. Not merely destructive, this doomsday device will make the entirety of the Earth's surface uninhabitable for 93 years. See why I thought there was a connection? Other points of similarity... The ability of one bad actor to potentially end human life on Earth. 
the relatively open diplomatic communication between two sides whose conflict seems to put all of humanity at risk. In Dr. Strangelove, the United States warns the Soviet Union about the attack so that it can defend itself. In Char's counterattack, there are numerous scenes of formal negotiations and several mentions of past negotiations going on in spite of the ongoing hostilities. In both films, the politicians don't seem terribly must by any disastrous turn of events, ignoring more existential threats in favor of turning their attention to the next power struggle. We talked about how the Federation government effectively gives up on Earth, shifting focus to retaining control of the colonies. At the end of Dr. Strangelove, having failed to prevent the bombing, the doctor recommends to the U.S. president that a small number of citizens be moved into deep underground mines where they'll be safe from radiation until they can emerge and repopulate the Earth. Even though there is absolutely no time to execute such a plan before the doomsday device goes off. Another advisor worries about a possible mineshaft gap, a reference to the missile gap, or perceived difference in number, power, and quality of armaments between the U.S. and the Soviet Union. Dr. Strangelove himself is a Nazi, like many scientists working on military projects in the post-war period, whose pasts were waved away as long as they were useful. And this has its own connection to Shah's counterattack, uh, the city on the moon where the new Gundam is being finished is Von Braun City, named for Werner Von Braun, who was himself a former scientist for Nazi Germany. And later in his life, he worked for the U.S. developing rockets, both for space travel and military applications. And the German politician Konrad Adenauer, after whom Adenauer Pariah is probably named, was noted, among other things, for his opposition to denazification and for his efforts to grant amnesty to certain Nazi war criminals. Of course, over on the Zeon side, men like Horst Harness and Kaisis M. Bayer are almost certainly old Zeon officers, holdovers from the One Year War. And we've seen how Shar's position has changed at various points over the course of these series. As Amaro notes several times, they used to be allies. Changing politics makes strange bedfellows. On a more lighthearted note, I can absolutely imagine Char delivering the famous line from Dr. Strangelove, I do not avoid women, but I do deny them my essence. My first thought on hearing Char talk about giving the Earth a rest was of the various studies that have been done showing how wildlife has returned and seemingly thrived in the exclusion zone around Chernobyl, thanks to largely to the absence of humans. However, evidence of flourishing fauna didn't come out until about a decade after the accident, and is not without trade-offs. Radiation harms animals, too. In fact, in the days and weeks following the disaster, it would have seemed pretty apocalyptic for non-human life as well. The surrounding pine forest turned rust-red and died, killed off by fallout, later to be bulldozed. There was no reason to expect that the radiation which drove humans away would be harmless for plant and animal life. So whatever Shar is trying to preserve or protect on Earth, it's not alive. A point which would have been very evident to audiences who likely had images of the red forest seared in their memories from news coverage. Into a time of widespread anti-nuclear sentiment and anxiety over both nuclear weapons and nuclear energy, 
it would have had a significant emotional impact on the audience to have characters invoke the phrase nuclear winter. In Japanese, kaku no fuyu. It happens four times. Once by Amuro, when he and Shar argue during the fifth Luna drop. Once by Nanai, when she's asking Shar if he's sure he wants to go through with the plan. Once by Tooth, when he's leading the final briefing aboard the Rakhylum. And once by an unnamed evacuee from Hong Kong. This on top of numerous references to both nuclear weapons and nuclear pulse engines. What I can't decide is whether all of it is meant to fuel terror and anxiety, since, as Shar's actions make clear, even nuclear technology meant for a peaceful purpose like transportation can be used as a weapon, or if it's meant to capture Japan's ambivalent position, with the fear of nuclear destruction on one side and the promise and potential of nuclear energy to secure a safer and more prosperous Japan on the other. The human future imagined in the universal century depends on nuclear energy. There is no life among the stars without it. It is hard for most of us to grasp what the emotional reactions to all of this would have been. We don't have the right context. I remember reading Watchmen as a teenager and seeing the doomsday clock and the nuclear fear, that omnipresent anxiety amping up to terror and thinking that it felt fake, and asking my parents about it, and both of them fairly matter-of-factly telling me that people really were that afraid. It really did feel that dangerous. It really did feel at points like we were that close to destruction. And because it wasn't in my lifetime, I'm never entirely going to understand what that was like. But I cannot imagine that anyone watching Char's counterattack when it was first released could hear Shar matter-of-factly state his intentions to cause nuclear winter, whatever his reasons or purpose, and not recoil from that image. And now Tom's research on Lhasa, Tibet. When the movie opens, the Federation central government is headquartered in Lhasa, or, as our characters are careful to specify, Lhasa, Tibet. But they are already fleeing. Shar's fifth Luna operation prompts them to relocate to the space colony Londinian. Lhasa then forms the setting for some of the movie's most arresting and horrifying scenes, as the asteroid descends inexorably toward the city. When it passes their shuttle, Quess spits disdainfully on her father, and I wonder if we are meant to see the fifth Luna drop in the same way, as Shar spitting on the Earth. Down below, on the Tibetan plateau, people stop their cars and watch. It's unclear if they're outside the blast radius, but at this point it is too late to do anything else. In the city, people struggle against the winds. A bald monk in saffron robes, a young person on a bicycle, a man holding onto his hat, we see no fewer than four mothers trying to shelter their children with their own bodies. Everything slows down in the final moments. The asteroid almost hangs over the unmistakable Potala Palace. Then comes light that consumes everything it touches, and a fireball taller than mountains. From a vantage point among the golden spires of the Jokang Temple, we watch a city die. 
Before the impact, Bright tells Amaro and the audience that no warning had been issued to the people living in and around Lhasa. Those who had the information, the Federation government officials, had simply fled. No doubt they realized that panic and mass evacuation would make it harder for them, personally, to escape. Perhaps, as was the case for the Dublin drop that occurred during Double Zeta, they viewed the extermination of these ordinary people as a boon, fewer mouths to feed. Notably, the Federation higher-ups seem to have kept many of their own underlings in the dark. When Adenauer Pariah and his family flee their mansion near Lhasa, it becomes clear that the police there have not been told about the attack. They simply believe that Adenauer is taking quests into space, because he thinks it will help with her behavior. Roughly 30 minutes of screen time later, at the meeting in Londonian, Adenauer confirms what we already suspect. The Federation government is intact, and functioning without much disruption. But why were they in Lhasa in the first place? Ever since First Gundam, we've seen the Federation's central government relocate several times. They start out in the underground Amazonian fortress Jaburo, somewhere in modern-day Brazil. Well, I assume that the civilian government was there. We only see Federation military leaders. But by Zeta, the government had moved to coastal Dakar in modern-day Senegal. They weathered the AU grade, but during the first Neo-Zeon War, the core of the government relocated to Dublin, now Lhasa. Each of these successive capitals is located outside of today's modern centers of power. They aren't in one of the grand old imperial capitals like London, Paris, Moscow, or Berlin. They're not in Tokyo or Beijing. And although the Federation is a successor to the United Nations, they aren't based in New York nor in Geneva, as was the League of Nations. Brazil, Ireland, and Senegal are alike in having been subject to three of the mightiest European empires, the Portuguese, the British, and the French, respectively. And each was embroiled in internal anti-government fighting when it appeared in Gundam. In the late 70s, Brazil's military dictatorship was in the midst of a crackdown so violent and repressive that the whole period from 1968 to 1978 is called the Years of Lead. In Ireland, the 80s were punctuated by bombings, assassinations, and reprisals as the troubles ground on. And even in relatively quiet Senegal, the years before Zeta Gundam's release saw simmering separatist conflict in the Casamance region take a violent turn toward guerrilla war. Lhasa doesn't fit this pattern. It was, and is, subject to the People's Republic of China, ruled by a distant capital, and there were violent uprisings and crackdowns in the late 50s, dragging on into the 60s. But that was decades before Shar's counterattack. Many on the staff wouldn't even have been born yet. And while Tibet's history is defined by its relationships to foreign overlords, it only ever had the briefest brush with European imperialism. The idea of a Tibetan nation occupying the high mountain plateaus between India and China, developed in the 7th and 8th centuries with the formation of a Tibetan empire centered around Lhasa. We know they were famous for the quality of their armor. Famously resilient, it was also beautifully etched and decorated with precious metals, textiles, polished coral, yak hair, and turquoise. The rise of the Tibetan empire coincided with the Tang in China, 
and the two imperial dynasties spent generations alternately marrying and warring against each other. Songtsen Gampo, founding ruler of the Tibetan Empire, established his capital at Lhasa in 637, and it remained the capital until the empire's fragmentation in the mid-9th century. 400 years of civil war followed. Power shifted to regional warlords, and Lhasa declined into irrelevance until the 1200s, when the Mongols showed up. In the 1200s, the Mongols were in their period of major expansion, and their armies were traveling through the Tibetan borderlands in order to outflank the nearby Jin dynasty. In 1240, Mongol troops invaded Tibet proper, facing little serious resistance from the feuding warlords. This led to contacts with Tibetan Buddhist leaders, most prominently the scholar Sakya Pandita, who served as religious advisor to the Mongol prince Godan. The Mongol overlords and the Buddhist monastics soon formed a mutually beneficial arrangement. Working together, they could unify and rule the disparate Tibetan kingdoms. This period of Mongol rule through local administrators would only last about a century, but it established a priest and patron model which would prove enduring in the region. With local faith backed by Mongol steel, the monasteries became the locus of real power on the plateau. And from this point on, sectarian conflict and political conflict would be essentially inseparable. Fast forward to the 1500s. The Mongol Empire has fractured and Tibet is once again divided. Altan Khan, a Mongol ruler occupying a large swath of modern China northwest of Beijing, is starting to become interested in Tibetan Buddhism, and in particular its newest major school, Gelug. He sends a message to a spiritual leader named Gyatso, inviting him to come preach at the Khan's court. In 1577, Gyatso accepts the invitation. Soon after their meeting, Gyatso makes a startling announcement. He has discovered that Altan Khan, his new patron, is none other than the reincarnation of the famous Kublai Khan. In gratitude, Altan Khan gives Gyatso a new title, Dalai Lama. And more to the point, he and his successors would give the Gelug sect and future Dalai Lama incarnations the military backing necessary to unify Tibet once more. For complicated reincarnation reasons, Gyatso was considered the third Dalai Lama. His next and fourth incarnation died young, but the fifth Dalai Lama, backed again by Mongol might, managed to reunify the country. He became the Tibet region's spiritual and temporal ruler, and in 1642 he returned the capital to Lhasa. He ordered a new residence built, the famous Potala Palace the same one we see destroyed by Fifth Luna at the beginning of Shar's counterattack. Tibet's newly won independence would not last. Fifty years later, a different clan of Mongols swept into the country and destroyed those who had supported the Dalai Lama. Then, under the pretext of expelling these new invaders, the Qing dynasty dispatched an expedition to Lhasa. In 1720, Qing troops expelled the Mongols then, of course, they installed their own pick for Dalai Lama, the seventh, if you're keeping track, garrisoned some 3,000 troops in the city, and replaced the civil government with Qing-appointed administrators. Predictably, rebellions followed, 
but the Qing would maintain nominal administrative authority over Lhasa and Tibet for the next two centuries. The influence of the Qing on the ground seems to have waxed and waned with circumstances in the empire as a whole. On paper, their representatives wielded tremendous authority, but in practice it seems that local Tibetan authorities routinely ignored or circumvented the foreigners. For example, the Qing emperors tried to influence the recognition process for new lamas, but the extent to which they were able to do so in practice seems to have depended on how much the Tibetan priests needed Qing support at any particular moment. By the late 19th century, still under Qing administration, Tibet was poised to become a battleground in the rivalry of foreign empires. The British moving north from India, the Russians pushing south through Central Asia, and the Qing determined to hold what they had. This was what the British called the Great Game, a deadly struggle for influence throughout Asia. It had been paranoia about Russian ambitions that prompted the British invasion of Afghanistan and the bloody Anglo-Afghan War that followed. Now it seemed very likely another such disaster was coming. The Qing responded to European interest in the region by strengthening their own claims over Tibet, declaring that Tibet was not just a protectorate, but a part of sovereign Qing territory, and getting both Britain and Russia to agree not to negotiate directly with Lhasa about anything. Lhasa, on the other hand, responded to the pressure from all sides by growing increasingly assertive and independent. In 1904, British troops marched on the city. The local forces were no match, and the Dalai Lama was compelled to flee before the capital fell. This is the 13th Dalai Lama, in case you're keeping track. A treaty quickly followed, but the British were satisfied with some strategic territorial concessions and a great big cash indemnity. The rest of Tibet was to remain just as it had been, under the Qing. But the invasion had touched off uprisings throughout the country. Angry Tibetans targeted those they viewed as foreign interlopers, European missionaries and Christian converts, but also Qing officials. The Qing responded with brutal punitive invasions between 1905 and 1910, and once more the 13th Dalai Lama was forced to flee. But by this point, the Qing dynasty had entered its death spiral. In 1911, it collapsed into total chaos. This gave the Dalai Lama the chance to return and oust the last vestiges of Qing rule. In 1913, he declared that the relationship of priest and patron that had for centuries defined Tibet's role vis-à-vis -vis its larger neighbors was finally at an end. Tibet would be an independent nation. For 36 years, Tibet navigated the hazards of being a small and de facto independent nation, right on the edge of the always hungry British Empire. While on their other border, the newly formed Republic of China was racked by wars of both the civil and foreign varieties. The 13th Dalai Lama died shortly before the outbreak of World War II. His next incarnation was soon recognized, but with their bigger neighbors otherwise occupied and their sovereign enjoying his boyhood, these years were relatively quiet for Tibet. But they were about to get very contentious indeed. In 1949, the civil war in China between the Kuomintang nationalists and the Chinese Communist Party ended with the triumph of the latter. In 1950, soldiers from the newly formed People's Republic of China 
entered Tibetan territory. The 14th Dalai Lama's government tried to resist, but they were small, weak, divided, and politically isolated. The outmoded Tibetan army was easily defeated in battle near the border. China then presented, and the Dalai Lama, just 16 years old, accepted a 17-point agreement outlining the terms for the incorporation of Tibet into the People's Republic of China. Terminology here gets very dicey. Whether what I have just described was an invasion, a liberation, an annexation, or a reclamation is hotly debated by partisans for the different sides. But whatever word you choose, the practical effect was the same. Tibet's brief period of independence was over. Lhasa, once again, answered to a distant capital. Six years later, in 1956, rebellions began to break out. The fighting started in regions that were ethnically and culturally Tibetan, but outside of the region formally administered by Lhasa. The 17-point agreement had provided various guarantees that Tibet would be allowed to reform and modernize at its own pace. But these assurances only applied within the area recognized as Tibet. And in the regions where those protections did not apply, the new socialist reforms sparked a years-long guerrilla war. As the guerrilla war continued and the chaos spread, the situation became increasingly tense in Lhasa. In 1959, amid rumors that the PLA intended to arrest the Dalai Lama, riots broke out. Soon the barricades went up, protesters seized machine guns, and the Dalai Lama slipped secretly from the city. On March 21st, the fighting started properly. Three days of bloody urban warfare ensued, but the outcome was never really in doubt. By March 23rd, the uprising was crushed. The Dalai Lama slipped across the border into India, followed by some 80,000 Tibetan refugees. Within a few weeks, the guerrillas in the countryside were decisively beaten and scattered. They would regroup, cross the border into nearby Nepal, and continue fighting as best they could through the 60s. The Dalai Lama would seek foreign aid, but none was forthcoming. So, no, Lhasa doesn't really fit the pattern for prior Federation capitals. Maybe instead we need to look beyond the pattern and consider how each capital reflected the portrayal of the Federation in each series. In First Gundam, the Federation is on its heels, reeling from the Xeon Blitz. Jaburo might seem impenetrable, but it is also their absolute last redoubt. We can assume that the government was more spread out before the war. Probably many local officials were killed at the start. Many regional capitals must have fallen the way New York did. A man like Mayor Eschenbach might stay behind and endure Xi'an occupation, but many survivors, many officials, must have fled to Jaburo in Brazil. Consider then the curious place of Brazil in the history of the Portuguese Empire. Starting in 1415, tiny coastal Portugal built a maritime empire that spanned the globe. Their largest possession, by far, was Brazil, a territory more than 90 times larger than Portugal. During the Napoleonic Wars, Portugal was a staunch ally of Britain, and therefore an inveterate enemy of the French Empire. In 1807, determined to stamp out Portuguese resistance, Napoleon prepared his armies to invade. 
This, by the way, is the opening salvo of the famous Peninsular Campaign, in which the Duke of Wellington would win his fame. Determined to resist, but unable to repel the massive French invasion, the Portuguese royal court did something unprecedented. They moved their capital out of Europe and into one of their colonies. On November 27, 1807, they boarded their ships, and two months later they landed in Brazil. It was the first and only time that a European empire was ever ruled from one of the colonies. The Portuguese court would remain in Brazil even after Napoleon's final defeat at Waterloo in 1815. They remained there for 13 years, until unrest in Portugal forced them to return. So perhaps Jabara was placed in Brazil because Brazil has already been the final redoubt of empire, a safe place for the rulers to hide when a powerful rival comes calling. In Zeta, the Federation was portrayed as dysfunctional, divided, and out of touch with those they ruled. Outside of Jamatov Hyman and his Titans, or Tetons if you prefer, the Federation's leaders were not actively malevolent, even if the government itself was so sclerotic as to make change within the system impossible. In fact, when people like Blex, Quattro, or Camille proposed solutions, they talked about moving the capital into space, relocating the politicians so they would be nearer those they claimed to represent. Thus, in Zeta, the Federation is a state in the midst of natural, but perhaps not inevitable, collapse. All of the feuding factions know that change is necessary. Even the Titan's leadership, we're told, believes that the Federation can only survive if it leaves Earth. And even Ayug does not want to dismantle the Federation. So let us consider Dakar. Back in episode 2.38, I researched the history of Dakar itself, and one of the things I learned was that as the French Empire disintegrated after World War II, French leaders attempted to reform the empire by narrowing the political gap between metropolitan France and the colonies. This took the form of the French Union, which would have been a single, globe-spanning nation with a single government ruled from Paris. In practice, this led to the situation we saw in Zeta, where the central government remained out of touch with the peripheral departments, and resources continued to flow from the former colonies to the former metropole. The Union continued to disintegrate, and so it was replaced in the mid-1950s by the French Community. The Community was to be a decentralized federation of self-governed and autonomous states, including both the former colonies and metropolitan France. Instead of a central government, there would be an executive council representing the different nations. There would not be a single capital. The executive council could meet in the capital of any of the member states and one of those capitals was Dakar. The community would not last. The collapse of what had been the French Empire was already terminal by that point, but it would last long enough for Dakar to host a meeting of the Executive Council. So perhaps Dakar represents a crumbling empire trying to use political reform to survive in the face of national independence movements. Perhaps it also stands for the futility of that effort. When we watch Zeta, it's unclear just how much we are supposed to agree with the Ayug or any of the characters. Can they reform the Federation? Is it too late? 
Was it ever possible? Placing the capital in Dakar and evoking the memory of the French community suggests that the answer was always no. In Double Zeta, the show takes that position more overtly, at least most of the time. The Federation's central government is not just out of touch, they are now shown to be actively malevolent. They talk about the ordinary people of Earth as parasites, as rats, more useful dead than alive. They feast while their people starve. This sense of rot extends into the colonies and the local officials. In Zeta, we met the mayor of Side 2, and though he lacked courage, he was willing to do whatever it took to protect the colonies in his charge. In Double Zeta, it is all corruption, greed, decay. The colonies are run by men like Damar or Stampa Haloy. They are no longer gleaming beacons of hope, promising a prosperous new future for humanity. They are crumbling symbols of that dream dying. Their social and mechanical infrastructure is on the verge of total collapse. In the midst of this, the Federation leaders are divided. Some are happy to remain in Dakar and cede authority to Haman. One gets the impression they would have been happy to give it to anybody who wanted it. Another group flees for Dublin. Though they are willing to give Side 3 to Haman, this batch is still determined to hold on to what remains of their power. Admiral White and his dinner guests all die at Beach Mansion, but in the end, with Haman's death and Ayug's voluntary integration into the Federation forces, it is this faction that really wins the first Neo-Zeon War. If Zeta asks whether the Federation can be reformed, Double Zeta says no. If Dakar represents the natural disintegration of a failing state, then Dublin, in Ireland, represents how a state callously crushes its own people, and the bloody struggle when it refuses to yield. But what does Lhasa say about the Federation now? After fleeing across the border in 1959, the Dalai Lama set up a government in exile in India and began seeking international support for his cause. The United States, committed to a globe-spanning fight against communism, was willing to provide aid, money for the government and arms and training for resistance fighters. But this was limited. In the words of one Tibetan guerrilla leader, the U.S. was only interested in making trouble for China, not in helping Tibet. Always inadequate, this support would dwindle away to nothing once U.S.-China relations began to normalize during the Nixon administration. In the decades that followed, reports filtered out of Tibet of atrocities by the Chinese authorities. Human rights groups alleged all kinds of abuses, up to and including state-sponsored genocide. International organizations like the International Commission of Jurists affirmed Tibet's right to independence. But China and its allies were quick to argue that these claims were just propaganda coming from anti-Chinese and anti-communist partisans. That the ICJ was funded by the CIA. That the Tibetan regime before 1950 had been a backward, feudal theocracy that oppressed ordinary Tibetans. That the exiles and the rebels were just reactionary elites motivated by resentment for their lost privileges. From this perspective, perhaps Lhasa's presence in the movie is emblematic of how often the suffering of common people is exploited as rhetorical ammunition in the games of politics played by the powerful. Today, the Dalai Lama is celebrated internationally. 
regularly traveling around the world, advocating for the people of Tibet, meeting with world leaders and celebrities, teaching seminars, giving talks. But for nearly a decade after his flight from Tibet, he remained in India. He made his very first trip as an exile in 1967, when he visited Japan to attend the opening of a Tibetan art exhibit. The reason why other countries were reluctant to host him can perhaps be revealed by the condition which Japan attached to his visa for that trip. He was to do and say nothing that could be interpreted as an attack on China, because that might hurt trade relations between the two powers. But during those early years of exile, the United Nations would take up the issue of Tibet's independence, passing resolutions in 1959, 1961, and 1965, denouncing abuses in Tibet and calling on all nations of the world to do their utmost to protect the human rights of the Tibetan people. In 1961, the representative for newly independent Ireland said, How many benches would be empty here in this hall if it had always been agreed that when a small nation or a small people fell into the grip of a major power, no one could ever raise their case here, that once they were a subject nation, they must always remain a subject nation. Strong words and strong resolutions, but they ultimately changed nothing. In 1961, for example, Japan voted in favor of a resolution solemnly calling for the cessation of practices which deprive the Tibetan people of their fundamental human rights and freedoms. But remember that in practice, the rule was, you can come and open an art gallery if you promise not to say anything that might disrupt trade with China. Perhaps then, Lhasa symbolizes the apathy, the hypocrisy, and the powerlessness of what we may as well call the international community. Does the Federation, vast but bloated, powerful but lethargic, utterly unable to comprehend the scale of the problems it faces, much less actually confront them, represent Tomino's feelings about the United Nations? By the 1980s, China was feeling more secure in its hold on Tibet secure enough to allow some representatives of the Tibetan exile community to return to Lhasa to see how things had changed. It seems likely they expected that after two decades of reforms and investment in the region, the Tibetans who had remained in Tibet would spurn their cousins, resulting in a neat PR coup for Beijing. But that is not what happened. Everywhere the delegations went, they were welcomed by vast and rapturous crowds, in Lhasa especially, thousands turned out to greet the exiles and recount stories of suffering. Embarrassed, and it would seem genuinely surprised by this, Beijing dispatched its own high-level fact-finding mission to the region. Apparently, they found the conditions even worse than expected, because the party swiftly announced major reforms to its policies in the region. Per the government's public announcement, Living standards in the region conspicuously lagged far behind the rest of the country. Education had not progressed, cultural relics and Buddhist institutions had been damaged, the Tibetan culture and language were not being respected. In fact, the economic situation was bad enough that Beijing suspended taxes throughout Tibet. Perhaps then, Lhasa, with its two putative governments located in exile in Dharamshala, India, 1,500 kilometers away across a mountain range, 
and Beijing, 2,500 kilometers in the opposite direction and across different mountains, symbolizes just how difficult it is for any distant government to understand and respond to the conditions on the ground in the places it rules. If Beijing and the exile government didn't know what things were like in Lhasa in 1980, then how could Lhasa possibly understand conditions in the colonies in UC-93? Or perhaps it's more simple. Maybe Lhasa is the distant home for which the exiles long. In the same way that the spacenoids, deprived of Earth, long for it and resent those who possess it. But it might be simpler still. Maybe Lhasa was picked because, when push came to shove, the Dalai Lama fled from the city while his people died in the streets. Just like the Federation government did when Fifth Luna fell. Next time on episode 4.4, more than peace, more than justice, more than freedom, all I want is you. We discuss character design, costuming, mobile suits as masks, and Char-truce. But Nina, Char's truce was just a red herring. <sighs> Get it? Oh, ho, 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 ho. Style and substance. Intercontinental podcasting. The Eagles! The Eagles! Vintage underwear. Ew. Masks all the way down. When you're still wearing the same clothes you were 15 years ago. Is this a call out? They still fit. And it's 106,000 miles to Earth. We've got a full tank of Minovsky particles, half a pack of funnels. It's space and we're wearing sunglasses. Let's do something extremely wicked. You can change your destiny. Mobile Suit Breakdown is written, recorded, and produced by us, Tom and Nina, in scenic New York City, within the ancestral and unceded land of the Lenape people, and made possible by listeners like you. The opening track is Wasp by Misha Dioxin. The closing music is Long Way Home by Spinning Ratio. You can find links to the sources for our research, the music used in the episode, additional information about the Lenape people, and more in the show notes and on our website. GundamPodcast.com You can get in touch with us on Twitter or Instagram at Gundam Podcast, on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Gundam Podcast, or by email at GundamPodcast at gmail.com And thank you for listening. The World Health Organization says that fully vaccinated Gundam fans can now share their wrong Gundam opinions on deserted street corners. So get out there and shout... It's not that Char has a death wish, it's just that he's tired of living, the only person he truly cares about wants to kill him, and he craves the comforting embrace of his teenaged protege ghost mommy girlfriend. We won't hear you, but I guess the world needs to know. I really enjoyed it actually, and was joking to Tom that apparently the way to get me to read like theory type stuff is for someone to give it to me as homework and then I will do it. Uh, Can you clarify what that means? 
I, I, I don't know. It's some British slang. Oh, I'm sorry. Can I curse on this? We will believe you. Okay. So um, curse, curse all you like. Um, it doesn't matter. Okay. <laughs> Not to get too much into quest feelings, but I, I do love her, and I do think that... Um, <laughs> uh, I think you said substantiated there when you meant to say substituted. Yeah. Do you want to say that line again? <laughs> Let me do a different read of that. That's where we'll cut. Yay! That's good. That was. This is a very good episode. Thank you so much for having me on. <laughs> Thank <laughs> it was a real pleasure. for coming on. It was great. Yeah. I, uh, I, uh, I, uh, very happy to be a listener for the rest of whatever episodes you're going to do around this movie. I know it's going to be fantastic. <laughs> I am very pleased to hear that. Now we just have to live up to it. Yeah. <laughs> Listen, the greatest thing is after you all put your, your CCA episodes out, no one will ever have to watch this movie ever again. <laughs> and no one will ever argue about it again because we will have outlined the definitive position. Yeah, the the nail in the coffin will finally be there. You'll have done it. GGP will have done it. Wow Cool Robot <laughs> will have done it. Nobody else ever has to have an opinion about this movie ever again. <laughs> That's all the perspectives we really yeah. need. No more Gundam discourse. Let's see if I can get the episode title correct this time. Oops. <laughs> of all the things to mess up, Mobius loops are both infinite and inescapable. That's what makes them inescapable. Is this a personal attack? I had it written as, is this a call out? They still fit. Which one, which one of us is more likely to get engaged to Carrie Fisher, and which one of us is more likely to hit on Twiggy? I have so many responses to that, but they're all filthy. 